you have a story of salvation to tell. The story of God's work in your life and the lives of your ancestors. When you tell that story around the Thanksgiving table, among friends, in a delivery room, what does that story sound like? When you tell the story of your people's faithfulness, of the relationship with God that they've had that spans the generations and that has brought you to this very moment, what stories do you tell? Where does it start? And who are the characters that you like to feature most prominently? What are the plot twists and turns that reveal a covenant relationship built on God's love and mercy and how that love and mercy have been lived out in the lives of your spiritual ancestors? What are the themes that seem to emerge again and again as your people have fallen in and out of love with the God whose love will never abate? The book of Joshua records a part of salvation history that we don't hear very often. It's the story of what happened after the 12 tribes of Israel entered the land of Canaan. It's the story of Joshua's leadership after Moses' death. It's the story of God's people crossing the River Jordan, encountering the resident tribes, and destroying them through military conquest. It's the story of Israel carving up the Canaanites' land and redistributing it among their own ancestral tribes. Now, Joshua does contain a few episodes of remarkable faithfulness that we eagerly teach our children, like the story of Rahab, the Canaanite woman who sheltered two of Israel's spies. But mostly, the book is a bloodthirsty campaign of genocide that results in Israel's occupation of the land that had been promised to Abraham. Like I said, it's a part of the story we usually skip over. But our spiritual ancestors did not record this story because they wanted future generations to celebrate the violence that is enacted in God's name. They recorded it because they wanted us to remember that we belong to a God whose identity is distinct, unequivocally distinct from all of the other deities that have been worshipped throughout history, distinct in a way that doesn't allow for mixing and merging with other religions. Our ancestors wanted us to remember that because we belong to that particular God, we are called to live in a particular way. The book of Joshua isn't written to be a historical account of how God's people came to possess the land of Canaan. It's a spiritual account of what happens when God's people come face to face with the challenge of remaining faithful when faithfulness to God is hardest to come by. That's a story worth telling. Choose this day whom you will serve Joshua demands of the people of Israel. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If only faithfulness came as easily as the people's words spoken in response. This is Joshua's farewell speech to the people of Israel. These are his final instructions for a people whom he loves. Like any gifted leader, Joshua has realistic expectations of the challenges that will await his people after he has gone. He knows that saying you are faithful and being faithful are two very different things. 
And he anticipates that Israel will have a hard time embodying the distinct identity of their God as the years go by. Choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua said to the people, putting to them the decision of faithfulness. And what did they say in response? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It's the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's our God, the Lord, who did all those great signs in our sight. It's as if the people are rehearsing for Joshua and for themselves a summary of all that God had done for them, including enabling their conquest of the Canaanites. Given God's unwavering provision for the people, how could they choose any deity but the God who had seen them safely thus far? Yet, in a moment of remarkable and surprising leadership, Joshua refused to accept the people's declaration of faithfulness. You cannot serve the Lord, he said to them incredulously, for God is a holy God, a jealous God. God will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then God will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. As if he had the power to see the future, Joshua seems to know that the God who had saved his people when they were in Egypt and guided his people safely through the wilderness and had brought them into this new land of promise, that this would not be the God to whom God's people would turn in the years ahead. How did he know that? How was Joshua so sure that the people were making a promise that they couldn't keep? Well, for starters, it helps that the book of Joshua was revised into the form that we have generations later, long after the people of God had experienced the hardship of attack and defeat and exile. And our ancestors who retold this moment of decision, they already knew that Israel would suffer great loss. And they tried to explain that loss by pointing to their ancestors' faithlessness. But you don't have to be a fortune teller or a revisionist historian to know that remaining faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob won't be easy because our God isn't the God of the prosperous. Our God isn't the God of the victorious. Our God isn't the God of the powerful. Our God is the God of the weak and the vulnerable, the poor and the oppressed, the destitute and the brokenhearted. Building a nation around a relationship with that God isn't easy at all. Have you ever had a favorite restaurant go out of business because it grew too fast and lost touch with what gave it that something special? Have you ever ever felt the spark that drew you to a particularly challenging job fade as lean times in that company gave way to sustained success? Have you ever thought that a church which once embodied God's mission in the community so clearly seemed to lose its way when it got so big that its leaders forgot what it means to be faithful? Joshua knew that as the nation grew in prosperity, God's people would have a hard time staying faithful to their humble roots and faithful to the God who had blessed them in their humility. Joshua knew 
that it was only a matter of time before the people began to associate their success not with the God of the poor, but with the gods whose carved images are overlaid with precious metals, the so-called gods of the Canaanites, whose worship was never really removed from the land. And Joshua knew that once you turn to a God who promises wealth and strength and success, it will only be a path of pain and hardship that can lead you back to the God who is found amidst the outcast and the downtrodden. How did Joshua know that? Because that unchangeable truth is written into our human nature. We believe in a God who saves us, not by giving us the power to avoid hardship, but by accompanying us into the midst of hardship. That is the theme of salvation history. That is the truth that is lived out in every generation that belongs to our God, but it's a truth that our people would often rather forget. If you ask a rich and powerful person which God they prefer to belong to, what do you expect them to say? It's a whole lot more fun to belong to a deity who blesses the rich and rewards the powerful. Even though we know that those gods cannot promise anything but fleeting happiness and false security, we turn to them again and again because they are the gods that we have made, gods we have made in our own image, the idols of our success. This might not be our favorite part of our people's story, but Joshua's words are important for us to hear. The book of Joshua uses the language of violence and total destruction not because our God calls us to commit genocide, but because of our propensity to abandon the distinct ways, for, uh, the distinct ways of our God for the ways of the world around us. Joshua's warning to the people is a warning to us that no matter how hard we try to get rid of those false gods, their allure is never fading. Now, it is a dangerous and evil myth that ethnic homogeneity could ever produce religious purity. That is never God's will for the world. Remember that caring for the stranger in our midst is a fundamental imperative in our religious tradition. The book of Joshua's portrayal of the Canaanite religions as self-serving is overly simplistic, just as its depiction of ethnic cleansing isn't historically accurate either. But one aspect of the story is as true for us today as it was for those who gathered to hear Joshua's challenging words. When we replace the God of our ancestors with the gods of our accomplishments, we bring ourselves face to face with God's judgment. When we worship the idol of progress instead of the God who cares for the poor, we call God's wrath down upon us. When we forget which God we belong to, we rob ourselves of the beautiful and life-giving truth that our God saves us. We are saved, not because we have the power to make the world a better place, but precisely because we don't. We are rescued not because we can invent our way out of a crisis, but specifically because we can't. Choose this day whom you will serve, 
Joshua says to us, the gods of your greatest accomplishments, of the God who rescues you, saves you, and redeems you. To the only true God be all honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Amen.